The Day of Retribution by Duffield Osborne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. A Dare to a College Man How It Was Taken Up The Proof of a Lonely Vigil and the consequences which, though somewhat deferred, were still capable of making one heart exceeding sick. How strangely, and often unconsciously, do we become powerful factors in the lives of those with whom our lives come in contact. Such was once my lot, and but yesterday chance uncovered the well-nigh forgotten episode where it had long lain buried under heaps of more recent and more personal reminiscences. A yellow letter that had found a dust-covered refuge in the drawer of an old writing-desk recalls the story I am about to tell, and will serve as its introduction. Holt House, Winfield Center, Massachusetts, August 26th. Dear Jack, don't think, because I have not laid eyes on you for two years, that old New Haven days, and least of all my old chum, are forgotten. You know what a sloth I am at writing letters, as well as you know most of my other shortcomings, but somehow or other I feel particularly reminiscent today. I am up here spending a few vacational weeks in the prettiest country and the best hotel I have ever run across. It is a small house, doesn't accommodate more than a hundred people, one of whom it is my fortune to be. And another is, to cut a long story short, the young lady to whom I have seen fit to engage myself no earlier than the day before yesterday. Of course, she is beautiful, clever, accomplished, and all that, and this brings me, old man, to my real object in writing. I want you to meet her, and to that end I want you to drop patience and prescriptions for a few days and take what I know you need, a short rest. There are several people here whom I am sure you'll like, and I've lots to tell you, especially something about my fiancé, which will make you open your eyes. Talk about this being a small world, but wait. Suffice to say, there is a mystery about her, which you will probably enjoy more than I do. So come at once, if you have any curiosity left. Finn. Tom Finley, usually shortened to Finn, had chummed with me at college for three years, and our intimacy had always been of the closest. I remember Tom as one of the jolliest, best-natured, and at the same time wildest and most thoughtless fellows I ever knew. One of those men who will utterly appall you with the peculiar outrageousness of some mad prank, and yet whose heart is in the right place. This latter fact was, however, seldom considered by the college authorities, and it was during an enforced vacation of Finn's, resultant upon his decorating the doors of the chapel in the president's house, with the coat of arms of a recently suppressed Greek letter society, that an occurrence took place which, while it amused, yet I am bound to say, shocked even some of the most heedless of us. The culprit had been sent by his father, with the idea of seconding the faculty in discouraging his artistic propensities, to the home of an aunt who lived in New Hampshire. One long autumn month had passed in study and repentance. Then ennui asserted itself, and Finn broke loose. Will Rayner and I had gone to spend a day with him and cheer him up, and that evening the village Boniface, while providing us with such refreshments as his house afforded, had filled our ears with local ghost stories, most of which clustered around the family burying plot up to the old Perkins farm. For some reason or other, the Perkinses seemed to be a restless lot. The living members of the family had sold their farm and left the region forty years before, while the dead Perkinses, according to our host, evinced their sympathy with the peripatetic tendencies of the race by strolling around at night and frightening their better-behaved neighbors. 
Perhaps they resented the neglect with which they had been treated, for the fence around the reservation, which was located in a lonely corner of the farm, had long since rotted and fallen. The slate gravestones, carved with cherubs' heads and wings and quaint inscriptions, had for the most part bowed themselves upon their chipped and ruined faces, while the weeds, grass, brush, and miscellaneous rubbish combined to make the place as melancholy and dreary a spot as one could well find. Abijah Weeks really seemed to believe the stories he told. As for us boys, we chaffed him and led him on over our pipes and beer until finally he broke out with a harsh laugh, winked at us triumphantly, and said, Well, maybe the folks round here is scary and maybe they ain't. Maybe one of you chaps would feel like going up there tonight and perching on one of the fence posts for an hour. And then again, maybe you wouldn't. And he laughed triumphantly once more. What's on it? cried Finn, jumping up. Well, replied Mr. Weeks cautiously, I ain't a-saying, but what I'll double or quit ye on what ye owe me for tonight. But how I know you spent the whole hour right on the spot, he added with true New England caution. I'll prove it fast enough, replied Finn. It's eleven now, he continued, looking at his watch. If you'll all wait for me here until one, I'll be back and satisfy you. And before we had time to assent or demur, he had walked out and slammed the door behind him. We waited patiently. The big clock in the hall struck twelve, and Abijah Weeks rubbed his hands and chuckled. I guess tain't over cheerful roostin' out on that there post bout now, he said. That boy'll have to do some tall provin' to make me believe he's done it. Do you think Finn would lie about it? I exclaimed indignantly. But Mr. Weeks shook his head warily. Maybe he wouldn't, but he's got to prove it all the same. By and by we began to talk less. The silences grew longer, and we found ourselves starting every time the wind made the trees moan or blew a shutter against the side of the house. At last we heard someone coming up the gravel path, and then a quick step sounded on the porch. We listened, eager and expectant. The door opened, and Tom Finley walked in. His face was a shade paler than usual, and there were earth stains on his hands and clothes. Under his arm, he carried a newspaper parcel, which he placed on the table and unwrapped without a word. As the paper fell open, we started back with varied exclamations, for there before us lay a very well-preserved human skull, together with what appeared to be an old silver coffin plate. "'For heaven's sakes, Finn, what have you been doing?' I shouted, while old man Week's face grew ashy and his teeth chattered. "'None of them would come up of their own accord, so I helped this one along,' replied Tom, with an air of rather forced bravado. Rayner had meanwhile so far recovered himself as to begin to examine the relics. The skull appeared, from its small size and delicate structure, to be that of a woman, and was in an excellent state of preservation. The teeth were remarkably fine, except that the first bicuspid on the right of the upper jaw was missing.' "'I suppose I lost it washing the thing down in the brook,' said Finn, as Rayner's eye seemed to note the imperfection. Upon the coffin plate we could trace the inscription. "'Abigail Jane, wife of Tobias Perkins, died June eighth, 1814, aged 22 years.' "'Gosh, you done it sure!' exclaimed Old Weeks, who was the last of the party to recover from the shock. "'But what an ever made you?' he added, with a look in which astonishment and horror were oddly blended." You want to be careful the constable don't catch you. Oh, I left things in as good shape as I found them, replied the culprit. Nobody's going to find out. But it wasn't a pleasant job all the same. The trees down by the stream waved and rustled and creaked until I got pretty nervous. But I swear I wouldn't have weakened unless Abigail Jane herself had appeared and objected. We didn't feel like talking much more, so we retired. And strangely enough, I believe that all of us, not even excepting the criminal, slept soundly. 
After Christmas, Finley came back to New Haven, bringing with him his grim trophy. I think that at heart he always felt rather ashamed of his adventure, but he braved it out nevertheless. And while several young gentlemen, whose apartments were only decorated with assortments of stolen signboards, shook their heads and stigmatized Finn's latest exploit as going altogether too far, yet they never rejected invitations to little spreads in our room, where Abigail Jane, as the skull was familiarly known throughout the college, presided like the skeleton at Egyptian banquets. On these occasions, in a spirit of academic bravado, she was placed in the middle of the table, usually with a cigarette inserted where the missing tooth had been. As for her spirit, I never had any reason to believe that it took exception to our proceedings or criticized unpleasantly a performance, which was, doubtless, from beginning to end in shocking bad taste. Two years had passed since our class had scattered and gone its several ways into the world, when, on a pleasant summer afternoon, Mr. Thomas J. Finley descended, satchel in hand, from the depot wagon and mounted the steps of the Holt House in the little village of Winfield Center. Mr. Thomas J. Finley was then a young man, rather under middle height, and what you might call of stocky build. A light brown moustache and grey eyes, which seemed always to laugh in the corners, served to set off a face, which, if not positively handsome, was certainly frank, pleasant, and attractive. The perfunctory greeting of his host and the ceremony of registering were soon over, and Mr. Finley was shown to his room with the information that the supper hour was from six until half-past seven. A few minutes after six, he came downstairs and entered the well-filled dining-room. With a hasty glance over his society for the next few weeks, and a mental observation that the guests of the Holt House were prompted their meals, he was escorted to his place. A more particular survey of the table at which he was seated disclosed two pleasant facts. First, the presence of a Mr. Rollins, an old merchant with whom his father had certain business connections and second, that the young woman seated beside Mr. Rollins was one of the most beautiful girls he'd ever seen. She was tall, with the figure of a Greek goddess and a face whose perfectly regular features and large gray eyes wore a rather haughty expression by no means unbecoming. She seemed about twenty-three years of age. While Mr. Thomas Finley was feasting his eyes as eagerly as he dared upon this specimen of truly regal beauty, she turned to Mr. Rollins with some casual remark, addressing him as uncle. Mr. Finley's plans were laid with promptness and decision. In two minutes he had introduced himself to his father's friend and had been most cordially received. "'Why, to be sure!' exclaims the old gentleman. "'Tommy Finley, son of Finley of Finley and Robinson. Bless my soul, my boy, I remember you when you were in short pants. Here, Mr. Finley, let me introduce you to my niece, Miss Perkins.' The lady's pretty lips parted in a gracious smile, showing dazzling teeth, perfect but for one defect— the first bicuspid on the right of the upper jaw was missing, and while Finley expressed his pleasure at the meeting and looked his admiration, he could not but smile, despite himself, at the odd coincidence, a Miss Perkins who had suffered the identical loss so often remarked in the skull of Abigail Jane. The evening passed delightfully, and the brilliant eyes of the beauty worked havoc in the heart of her victim. As they sat together at the end of the piazza, in the cool air of the summer evening, Finley's thoughts were drifting rapidly towards the extreme sentimental when Mr. Rollins approached them. "'Oh, is that you, Gail?' he exclaimed, peering sharply into the semi-darkness. "'Good night. I guess I'll go upstairs. Your aunt is playing whist in the card room. Good night, Mr. Finley. Hope you're going to spend some time with us here.' Finley responded to the old gentleman's good night with a rather absent-minded cordiality for his brain was busy over the name Gale, by which his companion had been addressed. Gale! Gale! What was it the nickname for? 
when half an hour later miss perkins rose with the remark that her aunt was probably wondering what had become of her he made bold to say while her hand rested in his for a moment as she bade him good night what an odd and pretty name mr rollins called you i am afraid you won't think the whole name is as pretty as the half she answered laughing gail is just the short for plain old-fashioned abigail it's a family name and in the interest of tradition i suppose they felt bounden to inflict it upon me good night mr finley finley's head seemed to swim what a strange coincidence for the first time in his life he felt a twinge of superstitious fear then with a vague craving for further information he walked over to the hotel register and turned its well-thumbed pages until he came to the names mr and mrs a b rollins new york miss perkins new york that was all evidently there was no further information to be obtained that night and after a contemplative cigar he went to his room only to dream horrible dreams wherein miss perkins stood before him with the skull of abigail jane substituted for her own well-poised head and again the table in his old college quarters appeared with on it oh horror not the skull of the long defunct abigail jane but the head of miss perkins with a cigarette thrust between her pretty lips on the side of the missing tooth then the face smiled at him the head nodded playfully and he started up in a cold perspiration only to fall asleep again and be visited by equally disturbing nightmares he was rather late in rising the following morning and when he appeared at breakfast there was a shade of pallor on his face and his appetite was far from vigorous miss perkins had left the dining-room but he soon succeeded in finding her so the days floated by a subtle charm seemed to draw finley nearer and nearer to this haughty beauty to him she was always gracious and in their constant companionship the hotel gossips found much to while away their time soon he had well-nigh forgotten the name of perkins it could so readily be changed and as for the abigail that too no longer disturbed him gail was much prettier and less suggestive three weeks had passed and the gossips had settled it all the affair between mr finley and miss perkins would certainly amount to something and strange to say the gentleman himself was for once disposed to agree with them in short tom finley was in love and now there came a pleasant afternoon whereon miss gail perkins was seen descending the lawn looking very charming with her yachting cap and her red parasol that mr thomas finley was in close attendance a shawl over his arm and his pocket bulging with a copy of keats poems no longer excited comment the lady had assumed an indefinable air of proprietorship for some time past it must be all settled and that ended it as they strolled along the wood paths on this particular day the humours of the pair seemed sharply contrasted she was all vivacity he silent and abstracted she seemed to note his absorption and to be amused by it at last a soft stretch of grass was chosen the shawl was duly spread and when miss perkins had been installed where a smooth-barked tree offered a convenient back mr finley was directed to extract the volume from his pocket and begin the poem was the eve of st agnes and the reader reclining at the feet of his audience threw all his fire into the beautiful lines he had one of those deep rich voices so well adapted to serious poetry in fact i often thought that mr finn himself considered its softer tones especially effective his companion, too, seemed not indifferent to the poem or the reader. Dangerous lights played in her eyes, and when he read where Porfiro pleads, My Madeline, sweet dreamer, lovely bride, say, may I be for I thy vassal blessed, thy beauty shield heart-shaped and vermeil dyed? 
ah silver shrine here i will take my rest after so many hours of toil and quest a famished pilgrim and then there came an impulse that made him look up into her face no pen of dead or living man can ever tell all he saw there but half unconsciously he closed the book fine phrases whirled through his brain in hopeless confusion his thoughts moved too quickly for any chosen words to frame themselves at last he blurted out miss perkins can you imagine what it is to affect a man as you affect me she smiled faintly and in the smile lurked something of gratified vanity something of conscious power and a gleam of tenderness withal don't you know that i fairly adore you said finley desperately perhaps she answered softly won't you marry me i know i am a fool to hope somehow i can't say a word that i want to i don't see any special reason why you should marry me but won't you perhaps what happened then i can hardly be expected to tell in the first place it was never confided to me in detail and in the second place i am sure that both mr finley and miss perkins will appreciate my delicacy in drawing the veil at this point perhaps some inquisitive reader may be able to lift a corner of it and peep under but for that i do not hold myself accountable it was on the evening of the next day that during a stroll upon the piazza finley was inspired with an irresistible impulse to venture upon dangerous ground do you know gail he said laughing i like that old-fashioned name of yours it's so quaint and out of the ordinary run of nellie's daisies and may's miss perkins assumed an air of deep mystery listen tom she said i've not told you the worst it's really too humiliating but you'll think just as much of me as ever won't you dear my name is not even just plain abigail perkins but as though that weren't enough for a poor girl they went and slipped in a horrible commonplace jane do you think you can love a woman called abigail jane to say that finley felt queer would but faintly express his sentiments he was dazed mentally thanking heaven that the piazza was reasonably dark and that his face could not betray him he managed to gasp feebly how absurd i, I mean how absurd that you would think i would care for such a thing no you didn't mean it that way she went on in a tone of affected sorrow you meant how absurd the name was and so it is but it really wasn't my fault that i had a grandmother named abigail jane perkins who died over fifty years ago and is buried up on the old farm that belonged to our family in new hampshire what was tobias perkins your grandfather he exclaimed unguardedly why yes how did you know she asked in a surprised tone mr finley floundered hopelessly for a moment and then said oh i-i-that is i ran across the name in an old deed once when i was searching a title to some land up in new hampshire and i thought perhaps you might be related you know and he laughed rather feebly how odd she said and then the talk drifted into less troubled waters that night in the privacy of his room tom finley did two things he resolved that the less he conversed with his fiancée on the matters of family history, the better it would be for his happiness. And second, being obliged to confide in someone, he wrote to me, his old chum, the letter which I have transcribed above. When I came down to breakfast that August morning and found Finn's letter by my plate, I was in a humor to receive its suggestion very favorably. Vacations have always had an especial charm for me, and a hasty glance at the morning paper showed that if I could get ready to leave by noon, I could reach Winfield Center by three o'clock that day. As it was impossible for me to spend more than a couple of days away, my preparations were not of a very elaborate character, and I found myself in due time seated comfortably by the car window, watching the trees, houses, and telegraph poles as they swept by in their mad race back towards Boston.' 
So sitting, I fell into a half-philosophic, half-reminiscent vein of thought. How our lives drift about. How trivial circumstances govern us. For nearly four years, Finn and I had been inseparable. Our innermost feelings and dreams and experiences were revealed to each other as readily as each would turn them over in his own mind. And yet, here I had not set eyes on him for upwards of two years, just because we happened to live some two hundred miles apart. Nor, stranger than all, had we even written more than three or four letters apiece. Now all the old college days stood out clearly before me once more, and clearest of all the episode, or rather the many episodes, to which the gruesome Abigail Jane formed a center. My reverie was broken off by a hoarse shout of, Win sent from the brakeman, and vaguely grasping the idea that I had reached my destination, I seized my luggage and made my way to the platform. I had not wired Finn of my coming, as I wished to surprise him, so, delivering my travelling bag to the Holt House porter, I declined his offer of a seat in the stage, and having learned the location of the house and that it was only ten minutes from the station, I started to walk the distance, thinking to make my arrival the more unexpected. Soon I had turned into the gate and sauntered up the long avenue of trees which led to what appeared to be an ideal summer resort. A glance up and down the piazza did not reveal my friend. So, entering and walking up to the desk, I inquired carelessly whether a Mr. Thomas J. Finley was staying there at present. Why, yes, replied the clerk. Been here almost a month. Want to see him? He just went out a minute ago. Here, wait a bit. He stepped from behind his railing and led the way to the door. There, do you see that summer house down there by those trees at the foot of the lawn? That's where you'll find him most likely. And the clerk smiled a benignant smile and went back to his desk while I started for the summer house, intent upon the enjoyment of my projected surprise. As I drew near, I saw it to be a pretty enough retreat for an hour's afternoon reading while the ladies were making their toilets for the evening, a rustic house completely covered by a thick mantle of vines. Suddenly I heard an exclamation, and then there appeared in the entrance the familiar form of Finn, a little older and a trifle heavier, but the same old Finn for all that. Jack Waring! "'By Jove, I'm glad to see you,' he shouted, and springing towards me, we grasped each other's hands in the shadow of the vines. "'I'm deuced glad to see you again, old man,' I said, shaking his hand warmly. "'How's everything? How's Abigail Jane? I hope you've treated her to a new store tooth by this time. Has the old girl given up her cigarettes and beer yet?' I got no further, for I suddenly became conscious that Finn had been making frantic and mysterious signs, and that his face wore an expression of ludicrous terror. At the same time, carried beyond all endurance by my obtuseness, he burst out with, For heaven's sake, Jack, shut up! But the warning came too late. As he spoke, there started from the summer house a divine figure clad in a bewitching gown of some soft white fabric. Her eyes flashed with a withering fury. Never in my life have I seen, never may I see again, such splendid indignation. There was an instant of silence, then she said in a voice trembling with passion, Mr. Finley, I consider myself very fortunate in discovering how you have referred to me among your associates. You will oblige me by considering our acquaintance at an end, and by refraining from trying to invent any explanation for your outrageous conduct. So she swept up to the house, while Finn and I looked at each other like dumb personifications, he of misery and I of utter stupefaction. He was the first to recover the power of speech. Well, you've done it, he said ruefully. "'In the name of heaven, what have I done?' I cried. And then he told me the story of the little mystery to which he had alluded in his letter as a special inducement for my coming, and with which the reader is already acquainted, ending the recital with, "'And now this settles it all. 
She'll never forgive me for what she thinks I've done, and she'd never forgive me if I told her what I really did do. That isn't your fault, Jack, he continued patiently, in answer to my protestations of sorrow. You couldn't be expected to know anything about it, but you've done for me all the same. Finn had our suppers sent to his room that evening, and we discussed the situation in every light. The conclusion was inevitable. No explanation could be proved except the true one, and Finn's performance, bad enough in itself, would be utterly inexcusable in the eyes of an immediate descendant and namesake of the deceased Abigail Jane. The whole story would have to be told to make it credible, and every detail was fatal to the hope of forgiveness. We were, however, spared all further embarrassment, for when we appeared with some trepidation the following morning, we learned that Mr. and Mrs. Rowlands and Miss Perkins had been obliged unexpectedly to take the early train for New York. As for ourselves, we remained only long enough to pack up, and then Miss Perkins' disconsolate fiancé proceeded to leave the scene of his discomfiture far behind him. Abigail Jane's Day of Retribution had come. End of The Day of Retribution by Duffield Osborne Recording by Colleen McMahon